The following sermon, Endeavoring to Keep the Unity, 18th on the series on the Book of Ephesians, the Blessed Church of Christ, was preached on the evening of May 1st, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this evening to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we will read the first 16 verses of the chapter. The text for this evening's sermon will be verses 1 through 6. I ask that you pay close attention to them as I will not be rereading them. Ephesians 4, this is the inspired and infallible Word of our God. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he said, Seth, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth, He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which Every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Thus far we read God's Word. Ephesians chapter 4 begins with the words, I therefore beseech you, I implore you, I urge you, And with those words, the Spirit marks the transition from the first half of this epistle to the second half. Chapters 1-3 through are a unit that go together that make up the first half of the book in which we have primarily doctrinal instruction set forth. Now we come to the second half of this epistle, chapters 4 through 6, where the emphasis is on the practical side of things, the application, and that becomes clear, and that in the second half, what prevails are various exhortations, such as, I beseech you. And now it's possible to overemphasize the distinction between the two halves. Because the reality is that, as we've seen, even the doctrinal section of this epistle was rich in application for us. And as we'll come to see, even this practical section is still based on rich theology. Nevertheless, there is a discernible difference between the two halves that make up this book. And that structure, that pattern that we see is Really, the grammar of Scripture, if we can call it that, 
This is what we find already in the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. First comes that Gospel indicative, that Gospel statement, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That's the Gospel. And then what follows are the imperatives, the Ten Commandments of how we are to live our lives. And that's the same pattern we see in most of the New Testament epistles. First, the Gospel set forth the doctrinal instruction, and then a series of exhortations. And that structure is important because it teaches us that the applications are based on the doctrinal instruction. And the doctrinal instruction is the the motivation and the power whereby we're ever going to live according to the exhortations that we have in Scripture. So we've come to the second half of the book of Ephesians in our series. And what is noteworthy is that the very first specific application that we find concerns our calling to keep the unity of the church. Now it's true, Paul begins verse 1 saying, I beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. But we view we need to view verse 1 as a, a sort of general statement, a preview that's giving us an indication of everything that's about to come. The first specific application under the broad heading of walk worthily is what comes in verse 3 that we endeavor to keep the unity. That raises the question why is this first? Well, a part of the answer is that this is in harmony with the doctrinal instruction we've already received. The book of Ephesians is emphasizing important truths about the church, including the church's oneness, the church's unity. That's been a point of emphasis thus far in this book. And thus it makes sense. It flows logically that the first exhortation has to do with keeping that unity. That's a part of the explanation. But there's more. Because the other part of the explanation is that this is a vitally important calling. The fact that this comes first should teach us something of the priority of this calling that we have as Christians to manifest and to maintain the unity of the church of Christ. So this evening we consider Ephesians 4, verses 1-6 through using as our theme, endeavoring to keep the unity. First, we'll look at the blessed unity we have. Second, the exhortation to keep it. And then third, the motivation to keep it. Endeavoring to keep the unity. The blessed unity we have. The exhortation to keep it. And the motivation to keep it. The main exhortation here is endeavor to keep the unity, but if we're going to understand that, we first need to back up and look at the unity that we have. And we confess that there is one church of Christ. We make that confession every Sunday through the Apostles' Creed when we confess in our hearts, I believe an holy Catholic church. That little word, and, is important. It's indicating there's one church. And this is something that's taught even more explicitly, for example, in Belgic Confession Article 27. Belgic Confession Article 27 begins this way, we believe and profess one Catholic or universal church, which is a holy congregation of true believers, all expecting their salvation in Jesus Christ, being washed by His blood, sanctified and sealed by the Holy Ghost. There's one church. And thus we speak of the unity of the church as one of her attributes, one of her characteristics that makes her what she is. And now when we confess that there's one church, we're confessing that about the church invisible. In Reformed theology, we recognize there's a distinction between the church invisible and the church visible. The church 
invisible is the elect body of Christ made up of all of God's chosen people from throughout the whole history of the world and from every nation, tribe, and tongue. When we have the whole company of the elect in view, we're talking about the the church invisible. You can't see it with your physical eyes. In contrast to that, we can speak of the visible church, the church you can see with your eyes, the, the church that comes to visible manifestation such as what we have here. Hope Protestant Reformed Church is a visible manifestation of the church of Christ. The the local congregation is what we have in mind when we speak of the visible church. When we speak of the oneness or the unity of the church, that applies to the church invisible. That invisible church made up of all of God's elect people is one church. And as we'll see in the in a while, the church on earth has a calling to manifest this, but we'll come to that in a moment. So the church is one, and it's important to note that when we speak of the unity of, church, of the church, we're talking about a spiritual unity. We say that over against the Roman Catholic conception of the oneness of the church, because for them it's an external oneness, an external unity, a, a unity of all being under one authority, that is, the Pope. A a unity of organization and structure. And we say, no, it's not that. It's not even a unity of place or time or ritual or any of those things. It's a spiritual unity. And everything that we've just said, everything that we've said thus far, comes out clearly in the book of Ephesians. This is a truth that stands out in this epistle. It's already been taught to us. For example, in chapter 2, we saw how both Jews and Gentiles were brought together so that the Apostle Paul could say, for he is our peace who hath made both Jew and Gentile one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. There's one unified church. That comes out in the calling that we have here. Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. He speaks of the unity of the Spirit because the Spirit is the one who produces this unity. But the very fact that He can speak this way, endeavor to keep it, implies that it already exists. And this truth of the unity of the church is taught perhaps most clearly and fully in verses 4-6 through of the chapter that we read. This is probably the, the clearest proof text in all of Scripture for the unity of the church. And that comes out especially in the repeated use of the word one. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. The church is one. And that's a statement. This is not an exhortation here. Let it be one. But it's telling us this is the the fact of the matter. This is the reality. The church is one unified body. So all of that from a general point of view, now we want to look at the specifics of what is set forth here regarding the church's unity. First, the church is unified in that we are one body. One body. And obviously the body here is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our head and we are all united to Him and thus united to one another. And we make up, we comprise one body. And that's true whether we are Jews or Gentiles, whether we are male or female, whether we are bond or free. One body. And exactly because we are one body, though there's diversity amongst us, that does not detract from the unity of the church. If anything, it makes it all the more beautiful. Because there is a 
a rich diversity in the church of Christ. We all have different places, different stations. Some are eyes and ears. Some are hands and feet. And we all have a different place. And that diversity makes the overall unity all the more beautiful. So first of all, there is one body. Second, there is one Spirit. The Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the idea is that the same Spirit who dwells in Christ is the Spirit who now dwells in our hearts so that we're united to Christ. But more than that, because it's the same Spirit in each and every one of God's people, that means we're all united to each other. Each one of us has the same Lord and Giver of life coming and dwelling within our hearts, giving us new life. And when He gives us a diversity of gifts so that we have our different strengths and abilities and talents, well, again, that only makes this unity all the more beautiful in that there's a diversity of gifts within the church, but all those gifts are brought together and pressed into the service of the overall body and in the service of our head. There's one Spirit. Third, there's one hope. Verse 4 says, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. And now, back in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul had prayed that we would know what is the hope of our calling. And in the context there, it's clear he's talking about the hope of our inheritance. The inheritance of life with God in the new heavens and the new earth. The inheritance that Christ earned for us by His own death on the cross. And because we all share one inheritance, that unifies us. That brings us together. Because it means we're all going to end up in the same heavenly home. But what is more, it means already now we are brought together in the sense of being fellow pilgrims who can lock our spiritual arms together as we make our pilgrim way through this earth to the heavens above. Having one inheritance, one hope unifies us. Fourth, our unity is that there is one Lord. One Lord being obviously Jesus Christ Himself. And He is our Lord because He's redeemed us. He has taken us who were slaves from a spiritual point of view and He has liberated us. He set us free. And at what cost? Not with all the gold and silver of this earth, but with His own precious blood. And again, that unifies us because it's the same blood of Christ that's sprinkled upon every one of us so that we've all been set free in the exact same way. And thus we all now serve this one Lord. That's the other idea of Him being Lord. He's Lord in the sense of being Redeemer. And He's Lord in the sense of being Ruler. He's the one who sits at God's right hand. He rules over everything. And altogether, we bow our knees before Him. We confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We've all been brought into His heavenly kingdom. We're all citizens of this kingdom and devote ourselves to the, the extension of this kingdom and the service of our one King. We have one Lord. Fifth, we have one faith. One faith, the text says next. And faith here is not referring so much to the content of what we believe. That's an important part of our unity. It's our unity in the truth that brings us together. That's why our official creeds and confessions that we hold to are what we call the three forms of unity because there's unity in our confession of the Reformed faith together. And that idea of unity in the faith is what's being mentioned when in verse 13 we read, till we all come together in the unity of the faith. There it is talking about the content of what we believe. But here in verse 5, one faith has to do with 
faith itself. We're unified in that we all trust the same atoning blood of Jesus Christ for salvation. There's unity in the faith in that the object of our faith is the same. The object being Christ Himself. There's one faith that He gives to each one of us. One faith that He works in our hearts. Sixth, our unity is that there's one baptism. One baptism. We've all been washed in the same blood of Christ and made clean from a spiritual point of view. We've all been baptized into the name of the triune God. And what that means is we've been marked out as God's covenant people. He has separated us from the world and thus separated us unto Himself. And in doing so, He's made a difference between us and the world. He's made clear we don't belong to them anymore, but in so doing, He's brought us all together as His own covenant unified people. We have one baptism. And seventh, finally, we have one God and Father. First, there's one body. Second, there's one Spirit. Third, there's one hope. Fourth, one Lord. Fifth, one faith. Sixth, one baptism. Seventh, and finally, we have one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. We all belong to the same family. We all have the same adoptive Father who cares for us and who loves us. And exactly because that's true, everything else in verse 6 follows when it speaks of us, of Him being above all and through all and in you all. And the all there is not referring to all men upon the face of the earth, but all who belong to this elect body that is the church invisible. Our God and Father is above us all and that He rules over all of us. He's in control of all things in our lives. He's through all and that He blesses us in and through Jesus Christ and He's in us all and that He dwells dwells in us by His Spirit and draws us unto Himself in that way. The church is one. She's unified with this spiritual unity that we have just described. If we were members of different bodies, if we had different lords, well, we certainly would not be unified. We'd be opposed to each other. But because all seven of these things are true at the same time, there is a blessed unity that now exists between God's people. And it's worth noting that this unity is found in our triune God. Did you notice that all three persons of the Trinity are explicitly mentioned in these verses? Paul starts by inspiration with the Spirit because it's the Spirit who comes and dwells within us, unites us to Christ, and thus unites us to each other. The Spirit is the one who affects this unity, who produces this unity. And so Paul starts with the Spirit. Then he moves to our Lord Jesus Christ because our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who sends forth His Spirit to unite us to Himself and thus to one another. And what is more, Christ is the one who really earned this unity, who purchased this unity by His death on the cross. And then moving from the Spirit to our Lord Jesus Christ, we come to the Father who is the source of all these blessings. The One who sent His Son and sends the Spirit upon us. This is the work of our triune God to bring us together as one body under our one Head and Lord Jesus Christ. So what's the point? The point is this is a tremendous blessing. This fits into the overall theme of the book. The blessedness of the church of Christ. And this 
is a part of it. Her unity, her spiritual unity. This is a tremendous gift, a tremendous privilege. And we need to view it that way. Because it's only when we recognize the blessedness of this unity that we will ever and that we will begin to endeavor to keep it. Because that is the exhortation to us. That's the calling that comes out of this passage. Endeavor to keep the unity. Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What does that mean? Well, this cannot mean that the preservation of the unity of the church is now dependent on us. It cannot mean that because of everything we've already said thus far. The starting point of Scripture is that you are one. We are one. This unity is there. This is a a fact. And And thus the reality is that there's nothing that can destroy this unity because this unity is ultimately that unbreakable bond we all share with Christ and thus with each other because that bond, that union with Christ is something that can never be severed, something that never can be destroyed. That means this unity is not something that can be ultimately disrupted. And so it's not the case that, well, God establishes this unity. He brings us all together, but then it's up to us to keep it. It's on us. It's our responsibility. That's not the idea. Rather, the idea, the calling, is to live in harmony with this unity. What the Scriptures are saying here is, you are one, and now live like it. The church is indeed spiritually one, and now let it be spiritually one. We have that calling in two main senses of the Word. First, the calling to keep the unity means we must manifest this unity. It must come to visible expression. And and it is to come to expression in the visible church, in the local congregation, in the church institute. And we say that because, as we said in the first point, this unity, this oneness of the church is an adjective that applies ultimately to the church invisible, the entire elect body. But now just as the church invisible is to come to visible manifestations here on this earth in local congregations in specific locations at specific times in history, well, so too is the oneness, the unity of that invisible church to come to visible expression in the local congregation. So the point is, we must manifest this unity. And we do that by coming together as bodies, as a body of believers. As a, a congregation. We do that by living in peace and harmony with one another. And we'll have more to say about that in a moment. We manifest this unity by establishing sister church relationships. By federating to form a denomination of churches and from there branching out and establishing church relationships with others throughout the whole length and breadth of this world. That's all manifesting the unity. And that's a part of the calling to keep this unity. Let it come to expression. So that first of all, manifest this unity. And second, maintain it. Two M words. Manifest, maintain. Guard it. Protect it. Preserve it. And again, we're talking about the visible manifestation. Because while the invisible reality is something that can never be destroyed, 
When it comes to the visible expression of it, that is something that can be marred. Something that can be damaged. Something that can be obscured or hidden. And we know that all too well from our own experience. We have all felt the pain of that, whether we are members of this congregation or members of the congregation in Edmonton listening in. At times, the visible manifestation of the unity of the church is ripped apart on account of sin. And thus the calling, keep the unity. Guard it. Protect it. Hold on to it so not as to lose it. And this is an urgent calling. And that comes out from the language of the text. Because the language we find in verse 3 is not simply keep the unity, but it's endeavor to keep the unity. And that word endeavor means to make every effort, to strive, to exert oneself, to take pains. And that's how this word is translated in every single translation that I checked or something along those lines. Endeavor to keep the unity. And this is something we're to be doing at all times. That comes out from the tenses of the verbs that are used here. Both, both the participle endeavoring as well as the verb to keep. They're both in the present tense in the Greek and that indicates this is something to be, this is to be an ongoing activity. This is a continual calling. And what all of this is teaching us is the urgency, the importance of this calling. This is not optional. This is not a suggestion. But this is the calling of Christ Himself to the church. Endeavor to keep the unity. And for a minister to preach that does not make him guilty of man-centered preaching. That's the charge, is it not? The minister is talking about our calling, our obligation, our responsibility. He's sure is talking about what the child of God is called to do. That's man-centered preaching, they say. That charge is groundless. For a minister to proclaim the language of Scripture itself does not make him guilty of man-centered preaching. That's biblically faithful preaching because you see, this is the inspired Word of God. The Spirit of Christ Himself is the one who moved Paul to put this in the imperative as a command, as an exhortation, and to even emphasize it by adding that word, endeavor, exert yourself. And if a minister is going to be faithful in his calling to be a servant of the Word of God, he must bring that out in a sermon. And for a minister to do that does not make him guilty of man-centered preaching, but that's true expository preaching. That's biblically faithful preaching. And the reality is, insofar as one objects to that, their problem is not with the preaching. Their problem is with the Word of God itself. Such a charge betrays a lack of commitment to the whole counsel of God. A lack of commitment to having our theology based on the Word of God and all that it has to say. Congregation, do not be troubled by that groundless charge that's being leveled against you. 
God's Word itself calls us to endeavor to keep the unity. How are we to do that though? What does this look like? In what manner are we to go about this? Well, that's where verse 2 comes in. Verse 2 describes the manner in which we are to keep this unity. There we read, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. And I see in this two pairs. First of all, we keep the unity by, with all lowliness and meekness. Lowliness is very simply a, a humble spirit, a, a, an attitude of humility that comes from knowing our own smallness as well as an understanding of our own sinfulness. It's having a proper view of ourselves. And that lowliness, that humility is so crucial for the unity of the church and the maintaining of that unity because it's such lowliness that makes us willing to put others before ourselves. This is what we read about in Philippians 2, verse 3, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. And we have good reason to live this way in light of our Savior Jesus Christ who told us that He is meek and lowly. Christ is the One who, though He being in the form of God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made Himself of no reputation. Took upon Himself the form of a servant. He Himself was lowly and suffered Himself to be humbled and humiliated. And now out of gratitude for that, we then seek to show that same lowliness in our interactions with each other. Text also mentions meekness. And the idea of meekness is gentleness. It's the virtue of not having too high a view of ourselves, of not being overly impressed with our sense of self importance. And it makes us gentle in our interactions with each other. It's this meekness that makes us willing to give up our rights or slow to assert our rights. It's meekness, gentleness that let Abraham to let Lot make the choice as which way to go, though the right belonged to Abraham for the sake of peace, for the sake of unity, he said, You choose all forgo my right. And the child of God is glad to do that because we recognize that of myself I have no rights. Whatever rights I've been given are the rights that Christ Himself has earned for me by His own death on the cross. So knowing what Christ did for me makes me now want to live in this way. So we keep the unity. We maintain the unity by living in all lowliness and meekness. The second pair of things mentioned here are long-suffering and forbearing one another. Long-suffering refers to patience. Long-suffering is what prevents us from seeking to get revenge when someone does us wrong. Long-suffering is what prevents us from becoming angry when somebody commits some sin against me. It's what keeps me from seeking revenge. And we all recognize how important that is for unity in the church. Because while we do have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and all the other things that are mentioned in this passage, there's another thing we all share in common. The sinful nature of our first father, Adam. We all have that in common too, and that means we're all sinners who sin against each other regularly. And thus how important is long-suffering, being slow to anger, being patient, with one another, even as our God has been long-suffering to us. Is, not, is that not what we read again and again and again throughout the Old Testament Scriptures? That our God is slow to anger. That He's long-suffering with His sinful people. And because He's dealt with us that way, out of thankfulness, we're to deal that way with each other for the preservation 
of the unity of the church. And now alongside of being long-suffering, the text speaks of being forbearing, forbearing one another in love. And the idea of forbearing is that we endure, we put up with, we bear with the various weaknesses and sins of others. It's forbearance that leads the child of God to tolerate the many offenses that are committed against Him. And notice this is forbearing in love. Forbearance, therefore, is not just avoiding an outward response of showing my anger, but I'm going to keep it all pent up inside and allow bitterness and resentment to fester. That's not forbearance. Forbearance is something we do in love. So that though I've been sinned against, though I've been wronged, I'm going to have an attitude of forgiveness. I'm going to pass over the faults of others. I'm going to cover their transgressions for the sake of peace and unity. And this forbearing each other in love is so important in the church because as we said a moment ago, we sin against each other, but to go a step beyond that, the reality is that we all have different personalities. We have different viewpoints. And while that's a part of the overall beauty of the unity of the church, that diversity that we have, it does sadly mean that there are certain people we are just not going to be all that attracted to. Our, our personalities might clash and therefore the calling is to forbear one another in love. And we do so not recognizing the love of God for us. That He loved us first. And because He loved us, we ought also now to love one another. And these four things that are mentioned, these, this pair of two that we see here, these are so crucially important because of what we see in our own sinful natures. By nature, what's in our heart is self-love and anger. Self-love in the sense that we have too high of a view of ourselves. And we think everyone ought to be serving me and it's all about me and the church and my opinion and what I want. And that's our attitude toward ourself and regard, regarding our attitude toward others, what we so often find in our hearts is anger. That when we are wronged in some way, when there is some sin committed against us, our natural response is to lash out. To let them have it. And thus we see the importance of this lowliness and meekness. This long-suffering and forbearance. These are things that we must cultivate in order with a view to Keeping the unity because that self-love, that anger, is only ever going to disrupt the unity that we have in Christ. So there's our calling. And along with this calling, we have motivation. There's good reason for us to heed this Word. And that motivation, very simply, is gratitude. Thankfulness. The text begins, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. And that word therefore is marking the transition from the first half to the second half as we said. But more than just marking, here's the transition point. It's linking the two halves together. It's telling us that Exactly because everything in the first half of the book is true, we now have this corresponding calling. It's putting them together in such a, set, such a way that we all recognize it's saying out of thankfulness, out of gratitude for everything that we've already talked about. Now live in this way. And we do have much to be thankful for. 
We have reason for gratitude when it comes to all the blessings that are ours in Christ. That's been the main point. That's been the theme that we have seen throughout that our God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. What we've seen time and time again is that God showers us with the riches of His grace in Christ. And that's reason for thankfulness. What is more, we have reason for thankfulness on account of this unity. The fact that all of this is not only true, but you and I get to be a part of it. That's what makes this beautiful. This is not just some abstract truth. This is not just some theological concept that we need to know, but we get to be a part of this body. We're a part of this church gathered from every nation, tribe, and tongue from the beginning of the world to the end of the world. And the fact that God has chosen us to be a part of this is reason for thankfulness. And we can be especially thankful for the saving work of Christ. The one who endeavored to accomplish our salvation. Take that word that you might shy away from. Endeavor. And apply it to Christ. Did He not exert Himself? Make every effort? Did He not take pains in order to accomplish our salvation? And did He not do this continually at all times, every waking moment of His life? That's exactly what He did. Christ endeavored. And that He lived a life of perfect obedience from the moment He was born until the moment that He breathed His last breath and gave up the ghost. Christ endeavored as He lived His whole life long as the sin-bearer. The one who had our guilt, our shame placed upon His shoulders so that from a legal point of view, He was the object of God's wrath. And Christ endeavored at the cross of Calvary where He bore that wrath in all of its fullness against our sin in order to make payment, in order to make atonement. And you see, it's when we take that word endeavor and apply it to Christ first that we then see how Scripture can then turn around and call us to endeavor. Because we recognize that our endeavoring is our thankful response to His endeavoring in order to accomplish our salvation. And the strength for us to endeavor is found in His endeavoring. The power comes from Him and His Spirit as He works that in our hearts. And living with that motivation, living by living in such a way that we're looking to Him for strength and seeking to live according to His words is really what it means to walk worthy of our calling. We go full circle here and come back to the, the general statement, the umbrella statement that the Apostle Paul began with. He began verse 1, Therefore, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. He speaks of our walk. Our walk is how we live our lives. It's our conduct. It's our behavior. He speaks of our calling. That is our the internal, efficacious, saving calling whereby God has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. This is the calling that's been described in that 
We who are sometimes afar off have been brought nigh by the blood of Christ. That's our calling. And now, the Spirit takes our walk and our calling and brings them together and says, walk worthy of your calling. Walk in such a way that it's in harmony with your calling. Let it suit your calling. And this is not the only place of Scripture that we find that type of language. It's expressed elsewhere, for example, in Philippians 1, verse 27. Only let your conversation, that is your walk of life, be as it becometh the Gospel of Christ. Same thing in Colossians 1, verse 10. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And what all these passages are getting at is that as those who have been saved, we now have the calling to live according to God's Word. Because He's made us our, His adopted children, we are to live as His adopted children. Our behavior should correspond to our calling. Exactly because we are thankful for that calling. Exactly because we are filled with gratitude for all that our God has done for us. That's what it means to walk worthy of our calling. So may God grant us the grace to do that. And may He grant us the grace especially to live according to this first specific application that we endeavor as a congregation to keep, that is to maintain, to manifest and to maintain the blessed unity that we have in Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word. And we pray that Thou wilt apply this Word to our hearts. Make us thankful for the Gospel indicatives, the good news of salvation in Christ. And grant us the grace to live according to the imperatives that flow out of that. That we might heed Thy commandments and live according to Thy Word. Hear this prayer for Christ's sake. Amen.